0: So we're joined today by Fred Miserella, who will be reading to us from and talking about Arrangement in Black and White. Fred, thank you for joining us for this episode of Bookable Space.
1: Oh, thank you, Yvonne. It's a great pleasure to meet you and uh, uh, certainly a great pleasure to talk about my book and uh, just the writing life in general.
0: So uh, I appreciate it. Anytime. I'm really looking forward to hearing you read as it will be a treat. So we'll do my dive best. It in. Oh, I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Can you tell us a little bit about Arrangement in Black and White?
1: Well, it's a book that really, in my head, goes uh, way back in my life. Early on, I, I recognized that racism was essentially the primary American problem. And uh, that uh, somehow relationships between the races have almost always got conflict, no matter uh, what we can do. Some of it is conscious, some of it is unconscious and that sort of thing. So I wanted to write something about that. Uh, I was one of the people who, during the 60s, went on marches, was down to D.C. for the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech. I went down there when the, writing, uh, uh, when the voting rights uh, act was signed and saw President uh, Johnson drive by in a limousine right in front of me when he went to sign the bill. Uh, so it's a sort of a commitment I've had. Um, and I'm not sure why, uh, except the fact that uh, one thing I remember very vividly is when I was a kid, I had a friend named Ronnie Brown who uh, was black, um, didn't live in my neighborhood, which was all white and Elm. it was Elmwood Avenue, all kinds of trees around and everything. But he was a friend I'd known in school. I used to have him come and play basketball with me in my backyard. And the neighbors complained about it to my parents. And uh, thank God my parents were on the right side of it. They said, let them complain. If he's your friend and you want to play with him, keep playing. So I did. Nothing bad ever happened. I guess the neighbors kind of talked to us less frequently and in a less friendly manner, but we never had any kind of issues other than a little coldness, I guess you would say. But that really struck me. And I remember my mother saying, they're human beings. What what are they doing? That sort of thing. So as a result, racism has always been an issue for me. Um, And um, when I was looking to write a novel, uh, the idea of racism seemed to me to be something that I should somehow build into it. And it seemed to me the perfect kind of drama, since I'm interested in family life very much, being an Italian, uh, family life is very uh, important to me. Uh, I felt I felt that the idea of a, a Black and white person marrying, living together, and having a family would be very central to a book that you know that would be about racism in America. So uh, as a result, I developed uh, the idea, the character of Margie, who is the central character of *Arrangement in Black and White*. She's a white woman from Iowa who had a terrible uh, mother, and um, her husband is Everett Hamilton, who is a young lawyer who just. This is takes place in the ninth early 1970s, who, as a result of the Voting Rights Act and that sort of thing, suddenly becomes interesting to uh, Democratic, the Democratic Party in Connecticut, and they want them to run for office. And meanwhile, Margie, who has had an up and down kind of life because of her parents and that sort of thing, she wants to become an artist, a painter, and she wants to develop her painting while he wants to move on in his um, in his career in in um, politics. And um, so I sort of threw all those things together and uh, kind of developed a story out of it. And that's essentially what it was. If there's any kind of research that comes in, it's from being so involved. In the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, you know, I mean, I, I I was there, not all the time, but I was there and I participated in marches in my uh, in my town in um, New Jersey. And uh, as I said, to me, it was the big American problem. So I, I always worked on it. Yeah, I love that you're working on it. Um, could we hear, have a reading, please? Sure. I'm going to read. Actually, I'm going to read Probably, yeah, it's the opening pages of the book, and this takes place, and it's called, it's a prologue, uh, and this section is called Monster, and this is about Margie when she is a a girl, a young girl, and I'm sort of trying to get at the idea of of fears and things like that in here. So that'll be the first uh, reading of a couple of pages called Monster. It has big eyes, a huge snout, bulging, toothy jaws, and at night it comes out of its cave to devour little children in the woods. As the moon sank behind the trees, Margie wondered if that were true. She wondered too if she could find her way in the dark, but at the memory of her mother running after her, cat-o'-nine-tails in her hand, she decided to stay. Mother was old, cross, ugly, angry at her for breaking something this afternoon, and by this time her father might be angry too. She would not go home until they forgave her. She squatted near the tree, feeling the roots swell from the ground, bracing her back against the abrasive trunk. As the sky faded behind the leaves, she heard a soft, metallic rustle, heard the rustle build into a hum, and heard the hum fill the night with music. When the leaves moved, she heard a higher pitch of sound, a crescendo that tapered off, picked up intensity again, and finally quieted. Yet the original sound remained. Then she knew the hum was not the wind, but the waterfalls just beyond the hill on her left. She stood for a moment, rubbing her hair against the bark. She squatted back on her heels. Tall and dark, her mother said, with smoke coming from his mouth, fire burning in his eyes, and huge claws he uses to rip off your arms before he eats you. He has the devil's likeness. Tell me a story, her father said. Margie had not believed her mother yesterday, but she shivered at the description of the monster now. She heard a branch crack to her right, and although she hugged herself, the thought of the fiery eyes came back to her with hope. She would see the monster easily in the dark, and she could run away before it found her. But where to? It was too dark to know where she was going. She sandwiched her head between her knees, wrapped her arms around her shins, and shoved her heels and seat closer to the ground. Would there ever be light again? Her mother had also said that someday the sun would go out. God would send all the wicked to hell and take a few good people to stay with him in heaven. No warning. Remember that, Margie. She nestled against the tree, wishing it would bend over and whisper. She heard a creak, then another, but without a blaze of fire, she convinced herself that there could be no harm. The falls hummed to the left. Locusts shushed and wheezed all around, but above the wind was still. Two eyes came near, darting off when she jumped back at the sight of their two greenish halos. Something small nuzzled her ankles from behind. She felt it against her shoes before it turned and ran off with a rustle through the underbrush. Am I dead? Will I ever see the sun again? She thought of her mother chasing her this afternoon, holding one jagged piece of the plate Margie had knocked off the sideboard. She threw it finally after Margie had dashed through the door of the butler's pantry and into the kitchen. Escaping into the yard, Margie had stopped, not knowing where to run, for the moment startled as the glass broke on the pavement beside her, spraying off into the grass and around her feet. Her mother had shaken her fist, gone back into the house, then emerged from the doorway, waving a cat of nine tails as if it were a wand. Margie had stood paralyzed, backed against the lone maple tree that stood near the garage and watched her mother come closer. She squealed, feeling the thongs break against her shins and ducked, evading a second warning of second swing. Then she ran through the alley into the street and from there toward the end of the block. You will never come back, her mother had shouted. Never. As Margie stopped at the corner, she saw her mother on her knees, lowering her head, almost hitting it on the pavement. Go away. Don't come back, you little devil.
0: Wow.
1: That's the first... I guess two pages, something like
0: that. Wow, what an introduction! So you told us where the idea for the book came from, and um, and more about the book. And guess so. Now I'm really curious. I love like characters, and I love um, hearing how writers create them and kind of how they form them. Could you tell us a little bit about um, Margie and and Everett and how you created them as characters and their home lives? They're set set to different upbringings. How did all of that come to you as the writer?
1: Well, you know, I I wish I could give you a detailed answer. I mean, these are, I mean, uh, as a writer yourself, I guess you imagine sometimes you're, I guess you know, you're sometimes your imagination just takes over for you. And, uh, you know, I was looking for a young kid lost in the woods to kind of represent somebody who's lost in the world and uh, the, the fears that are giving given to them, and I sort of came up with this young face and young body and that sort of thing in my mind. You know I really I, I I honestly uh, there's no one that I can point to and say that's the model. Mm. it's just the way it was you know for me mm. and the same thing with her husband now i wanted him his father everett's father is a union representative so he comes from a, a family that is educated and advanced economically and uh, that sort of thing and I, I wanted him to be somebody who has some kind of uh strength and depth, but still even with a successful life, has this burden of race on his shoulders. You know, and so I don't know how to so I, I I think of him as somebody who's solid and strong and smart and verbal. And I think of her as somebody who's confused and angry and messed up and desperate, but at the same time talented as an artist. And uh, so somehow they come together. And as a writer, I don't know, you fit these things in. That's, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how I do it. Anyhow.
0: I love Uh, that. They're so opposite and yet they do come together. Yeah. So they met in Paris, right? Yeah. Yeah. As characters. So they meet in Paris and you just bring them together as they're different, but I also really appreciate that they are human characters. And so they have their flaws, their burdens, And their wants and needs and motivations, and whether they make those work or not, I think that's um, it's such a nice way to see them as complex characters. Capable. Well, he sort
1: of saves her from Paris in Paris from uh, an attack by an African guy who she meets on the streets, and he and Everett, uh, who's there as a kind of exchange student of some kind, he saves her. And with that, they be, their, their relationship begins. Um, Mm -hmm. So he's sort of the the hero at one stage and then (laughs) descends from that to being a husband, (laughs) (laughs) you know, and after that, then things change a little bit, but. uh,
0: (laughs) Could we have another reading,
1: please? Oh, I'll do, uh, I'll stay, stay with that opening section. But in this one, this is the father's, her father who has come home and he's uh, looking for her because he knows that she's run off from his wife. And he's gone into the woods and looking for her because he's taken her a lot. Now, his big fear, I should tell you this, is that there's a waterfall nearby and she loves being near the water. And his big fear is that somehow, she's going to get caught up in that stream and be swept down the waterfall so he's he's fearful okay, okay. but he's looking for her he shined a light into the cave held the lantern above his head walked inside the cave and pointed the searchlight toward the back nothing not the slightest sign why the hell did you come here anyway He ran outside, screamed as loud as he could, and did not bother listening for a reply. If you had come here right away, if you didn't wait till after dark, if that monster that I'm living with didn't have to be taken to the hospital. But he stopped again, sighing. So she's not in the cave. She's somewhere else. She's sensible. You trained her about these woods. She knows what to do. Don't panic. Think. That's how you always destroy your life, just five hours to sun up. I'll get a group of men, I'll he sat on a rock and buried his head in his hands. Oh God, if she if she I could do it all myself. I didn't need anybody. I didn't want anybody. I can't have anybody find me out. He raised his fists and pounded them on his head. He pulled his hair and tried to slap his face, but could not manage a sharp enough blow. You dunce. You ass. You coward. So they wouldn't know. So they wouldn't know you have a crazy wife. So you wouldn't have to admit that you're unhappy. As if the whole town. Didn't already know. He picked up the searchlight and lantern and tried to think about his next step. He turned the flashlight to the sky then circled it around the underbrush at his feet. Nothing. In a fit of rage, he lifted his arm as if to throw the searchlight into the bushes. You will not panic. You will not give up. You will not do crazy, stupid things. He took a deep breath stood and decided to walk back to the stream. He would check the rise, the trees, both banks and the surface. Maybe she... He blotted that out and decided that she had not gone near the stream. Oh God, I hope there are no vicious animals out tonight. He thought of a boy who in a horrible accident had been attacked by dogs last summer. Immediately he saw Margie torn to shreds. No, no. They would have growled. He would have heard them in these quiet woods. He took two steps, listened to the murmur of the wind and the slight whoosh and splash of the waterfalls, and screamed as he began to run down the incline through the trees. The falls, the water, Margie. He had not heard his own voice as he stood by the falls before. He had not even heard himself when he had screamed, Margie. He went around a tree, barreled through some bushes, fell head over heels down an incline, landed on his back, screamed her name as he stood, actually ran into a tree. And Margie leaped up, groping for the searchlight beneath some bushes when, out of the corner of his eye, he saw something moving in the light. Moving! He stopped, fumbled with the lights, then held still. Something short and bright ducked behind a tree, then peered out from the shadows on the other side. He whispered, questioning, Margie. He caught a glimpse of yellow, a wisp of white beneath it, and finally, what he was sure was a rosy, wily, frightened face. He did not move. In fact, he hardly breathed. Honey, it's me, Daddy. She disappeared as he heard a rustle of leaves. Margie, don't. Don't go away. It's all right. He stepped forward and stopped, seeing her full face in the lantern's glare. When she went behind the tree again, he trembled and almost began to cry. Oh, baby, we love you. We really do. I'm sorry you had to stay out so long. I'm sorry we're such a bad mommy and daddy to you. She raised her hand to her face and seemed to shake. She looked exhausted. It occurred to him that she might be blinded by the lights. Honey, look, see, it's daddy. He put the lantern behind him and turned the searchlight on his face. Why didn't you come out earlier? Why did you let me walk around so long? I hurt myself, she blubbered. Touching her cheek and forehead, she pointed to her face and looked at him with disapproving eyes. He saw dirt and perhaps a little blood. He lowered the light, crossed to the tree, and with a sob lifted her into his arms at last. Her eyes were wide and frightened. Yet she swung at him with all her might, striking him in the nose and ear as if he were some dangerous beast. He stumbled, almost dropping her, then shifted, clutching her to his chest. It's all right, it's all right, it's all right, he shouted. He was laughing now. As she swung toward him in a final exhausted blow, she collapsed against his chest. I hate you. I hate you both. She pushed him away, screaming. Her palms were like little animals. I missed you, he whispered. Margie Winters, I'm so glad that you're alive. She wiped her nose and demanded that he set her down. Then, with a neutral, disinterested face, she began to walk away. He followed until she passed the falls. Then silent, he caught up with her, and they followed the brook until they saw the town ahead of them, aglow in the darkness of the plain.
0: Oh, my goodness. What a moment. Like, it's uh, just so much there. It made me want to cry. There's just so much pain there. And so oh yeah. Pain. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. It's I mean, vivid and you had me holding my breath, but also it <laughs> it did make me want to cry. And I just felt like for for Margie and for her father in that moment. Yeah. And like, my goodness. Oh, that's
1: great. Thank you. Yeah.
0: No, thank you. I think it's such a gift to be able to like to sit and be read to and to be kind of taken to those places imaginatively and creatively. Oh, sure. Yeah. So I think, thank you for, you know, inviting us all in to that moment. I guess my final question would be, so you mentioned that like your research for the book was like you being there, like some of that was you being in the civil rights. And then there's, there's also like other parts of it, like, I mean, like their relationship and the tremors that of, you know, this, the lost child in the woods and the father's fear and the mother who seems to be going through something, some sort of, um, I'm not sure what her challenges are, but the mother has like her issues. And then when Margie grows up, she has her issues. So there seems to be so many different components to making this, you know, this book and this landscape, whether it's physical, emotional, psychological. So if you could tell us a little bit about some of the other research that might've gone into the writing of the book, even if that research is the writing of it. But then I'm also really curious about if there's, one thing you can tell us about that you learned through the writing and through your research that interested you, but had no place in the book. And so you didn't include it. <laughs> That's a tough question. I don't know. I tend to
1: kind of, uh, write long. So it's hard for me to believe that I left something out. <laughs> <You know? laughs> uh, I don't know. I you know, uh I just put it all in there as much as I could, you know, from doing my I don't, I don't re- frankly you you keep using the word research. I don't remember doing anything actively like research, uh, Mm. where I uh, went to the library or anything like that. I mean, as I say, it's sort of, to me, it's life. You know, my mother, if you want to be autobiographical, my mother had a terrible temper sometimes. Now, she never did anything like this mother does. But as a kid, I sort of felt like you never really know, knew if something like that would happen because she would mm-hmm. lose her temper pretty badly and sometimes say or do things that were pretty bad. She was a good woman, but she had some real basic disturbances, uh, you know. So, so if there's any research, I guess it's in k- kind of life, you know, and observing people, Uh <coughs> Uh, I don't, you know, I don't really know what else I can tell you about that
0: idea, but. Um, th- no, actually, that's fine. I love the idea of like you write long and it's just <laughs> it's oh. something that you're like, well, yeah, you know what, actually, I'm, I'm going to put it in. I'm gonna
1: yeah. put it in. Well, you know, I, I I I haven't read him in years, I'm sorry to say, but I mean, I was a Faulkner freak. And if anybody writes long, it's Faulkner, you know, when you, when he writes sentences that go on for 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 Pages, you know, this guy writes long. You know, there's never going to be a short uh, story that's really short from him. It's always going to be developed. So uh, I don't know. Uh, so I guess that's how I am in that way. You know, not as talented as him, I have to say. But and by the way, he was also the guy who saw miscegenation as being the major American problem. You know, that kind of fear of miscegenation or something like that. And so in lots of ways, my reading of Faulkner uh, is uh, influencing me in writing and having written this book. Wow. Even though it's not a Southern book, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of the book, could we have our final reading from Arrangement in Black and White, please?
1: All righty. Let me see. What do I have here for you? I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, I'm going to read a scene. Between Margie and Everett, her husband, he has decided to run for office. They have a major argument, uh, and he and she loses it at some point, and kind of stabs him a li, uh, and does a, a minor wound. And speaking about stabbing, I'm so I'm still upset about Salman Rushdie, yeah. but uh, yeah. But anyhow, so she loses it and kind of stabs it, but it's a very kind of minor wound. And uh, he, But he's fine now. And she's come back uh, to try to talk to him about it all, that sort of thing. And so this is a conversation, sort of part argument, part trying to kind of state their cases to each other between Margie and Everett. Okay. Thank you. As I said in the letter, Margie, I'll go to Wiltshire when I feel that you and I are ready. Now, Wiltshire is a place where she had hoped that they would go to kind of work on their marriage. She went to, and he sort of thought that was essentially something he didn't want to do. Okay. He was worried about that getting out to the press. And he also didn't think it really was something that, you know, he, he feels like, They're strong enough to do it themselves, okay? So anyhow, as I said in the letter, Margie, I'll go to Wiltshire when I feel that you and I are ready. That's exactly why I have to leave you, Everett. When will we be ready in your estimation? She put the orange juice down and opened her hands and placed them on her knees. Just a few light blows, she thought. Looking at her nails and noticing that they needed painting, yet definitely more than a simple sparring match. she thought of Kennedy's comment about selfishness and could not figure wherever it stood. What do you think he asked about what us? I think you're avoiding me as always. Come on, Margie. I've been a damn committed husband, and you know it. Oh, really? well then how do you feel about us now? Terrific, really terrific. He laughed, placing a a hand near the bandage on his neck. She remained calm for a moment, but she felt that in his own way he was getting to her. If this kept up, she would have to shout to reach him, and she did not like that. She kicked off her shoes and sat with both her feet under her on the couch. She tried to steal as she had when she talked to Kennedy. Kennedy is her their son. Mm. Uh, that's who Kennedy is. Pointing to his bandage, Margie said, I'm glad that's not serious. I was really worried. I want to apologize. He waved some blood, but really not much of it. I'm very relieved. He shook his head. You're a child sometimes, Margie. That was one of the times when you were most childish. She dropped her hands in her lap. Everett, I don't want to be analyzed. Try to figure out your own failures. Failures? He sat up looking at her as if the word applied to him as an insult. Yes, that's the word. You're acting the part of a white man. That's a sellout as far as I'm concerned. It's also one definition of failure. His mouth nearly dropped open. It always comes out, doesn't it? Even from you. What? You know damn well what? Stinking racism. Oh, and what about your sexism, you bastard? The little woman standing behind her man. He waved his hands above his head. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! And the Lord God brought feminists. Hanging from the trees. That's it. That's the way it always is. My problems are never as difficult as yours. You don't think my life is as important either. Hell. It's true. You don't even think I do significant work. For Christ's sake, Margie, has a woman ever been lynched or tortured because she was a woman? As an artist? Everett, you know better. What about rape and wife beating and censorship? My God, have you forgotten everything? He looked down at his hands. She slammed her fist on her knee. Furthermore, despite everything, you've had rewards. What do I get out of my work? Nothing, a feeling of uselessness. And a provider and a lover in me, he said plaintively but because I'm a mother, not because I'm loved. Everett threw up his hands. That's not true, and you know it. I love you very much. He leaned back, looking at her thoughtfully. Margie, in a black man, that useless feeling you're talking about is perceived as shiftlessness. We can't afford to be idle if we're going to be men. She groaned. They stared at each other. The friendly veneer cracked and nearly vanished. Everett made a point of smiling, but when he seemed to think, but then he seemed to think of something and turned away. You may not care about this, he said, but I'll tell you anyway. What you're doing, no matter how innocent, really hurts my chances for election. In this, Everett, but I don't care, really. He put his hand up again to quiet her. I really don't, Margie. Now, that might seem wrong-headed or stupid to you, but that's the way I feel. I want to be a mayor, but I won't sell out for it. What about Gray? What? Please, please listen to me. When my family moved into our house in Bridgeport, my parents were stoned. People broke our windows and shouted ugly things. I never forgot that. Then, when you and I moved here, we had all that awful neighborhood nonsense to endure. Well, because of that, I've tried to prove that I deserve to be where and what I am. I've succeeded more than I ever hoped, and I will continue. See? But, Margie, Two papers in this town would love to blow my private life to smithereens. The only reason they haven't is that I have Fred Gray on my side. He's the party leader. Mm-hmm. And and now possibly Buford, who's a uh, the party leader for the whole region that they're in. Everett, let me finish, will you? She slouched back in her seat. One headline like, Candidate's wife runs off with adolescent, or better yet, black candidate's wife in weekend tryst with juvenile. Then I'm finished. They print it with a front page picture of you and me at that dinner. And Margie smiled. ultra high contrast. No doubt my little dress would come out very well next to your dark skin. He shook his head. It's not funny, Margie. I don't have to remind you that Buford supporter that he might be would not be hard to buy off if I judge him correctly. He's a shit. You're a sellout, but he's a genuine, unmitigated piece of shit. Everett looked in her eyes and shook his head again. I have no choice. I have to work with him so I can't complain. If you're not selling out, why do you have to work with him? Everett looked away, nodding. Margie, I know that something went on between you two. She said nothing. I don't mind, he said. I really don't mind. Mostly.
0: So where can we buy arrangement in black and white?
1: Well, you know, I I'm sorry to say most bookstores nowadays uh, are not doing very well, but I would say any bookstore that you go to can order it. They probably. I don't think it's likely they'll have it in their shop. So any bookstore can order it. You can order it by yourself from Amazon or from what is it bookshop? There's another. Uh, there's another uh, application on uh, the internet where you can buy books, and that somehow goes to help local bookstores. So I think that's a good one. Uh, those are the two places I would say predominantly. And and if not, just go to your local bookstore store and order it. They'll get it as soon as uh, they can.
0: Wonderful. Fred, thank you so much for joining us, for being such a delightful guest, for these engaging readings. It was a treat to talk to you today.
1: Thank you, Yvonne. I appreciate your helping other writers. And uh, I wish you well in your own career. And uh, we'll talk again soon, maybe in person. Oh, thank you. That would be a delight.